All right, uh, Amos was a shepherd, but please don't look down on him because of that background. As we study today the content of the book of Amos, please consider whether this was just some average shepherd. Um, His familiarity with a lot of the literary forms that we studied last time and his skill even in debate, which present him as having an uncommon experience, opportunity, and sensibility, show him to be fully equipped by his personal background somehow in God's providence, as well as God's personal command to him to be a prophet, to carry out his tasks as exactly that, a prophet of God. No longer think of him as a shepherd. He's a prophet of God. All right, so Amos, I'd like to cover chapters 1, verse 3, up to 2, verse 16. Um, So you'll see this as a standardized pattern that our prophet repeats, starting in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. You know that phrase? If you read this through, you'll notice that repeated. So verse 6, the same statement toward the country of Gaza. Verse 9 against Tyre, verse 11 against Edom, verse 13 against the Ammonites, chapter 2, verse 1 against Moab, chapter 2, verse 3, uh uh-oh, against Judah. That's getting close to home. And then chapter 2, verse 6, direct hit against Israel itself. So what you'll notice in this repeated refrain, thus says the Lord, three transgressions of and four, is that it's a type of prophecy in which God's prophet speaks against the other nations First, and then he speaks against God's own people. And for, for him to say three transgressions and for four, he's saying this isn't just one bad moment. This wasn't you having a bad day. There's a pattern here of three, if not four. I've got you. This is truly a problem, and I'm addressing you about it. That's kind of the idea behind three transgressions and four. But of course, it comes across in poetic language. This type of prophecy we see in other books, other prophet books, and it's called Oracles Against the Nations. O-A-N is how the scholars abbreviate it. O-A-N, Oracles Against the Nations. Uh, Amos chapter 1, verse 3 to 2, verse 16. When you, if you remember, we had that in Jeremiah, chapters 46 to 51, a lot of oracles against the nations. Ezekiel has it, chapters 25 to 32. Isaiah has it, chapters 13 to 23, and so on. The larger point is that the prophets of God had a vision that went far beyond Israel and Judah. God has a message for the whole world. So that would be why a prophet of Israel or a prophet of Judah could dare to speak about different countries, right? How dare you speak about other countries is what your modern coworker might say uh, to you, right? They were very well aware that the Lord God is sovereign over all the nations. And this sets the stage for Jesus to become the savior of the world. There are Christians in each nation. There will be people from every nation in heaven, every tribe and nation and people and language, Revelation 7, verse 9. If God would save each nation, then God would also warn each nation through his prophet. God would also judge each nation. And God who, who go, oversees who goes to... God oversees who goes to his heaven and who does not. Now, if you were to map out, uh, literally on a map, those countries that we just listed from chapter 1, 3 to chapter 2, verse uh, 16, what you'd find is that they start out on the perimeter and then they zero into the center. If you, you want, you could draw it like a bullseye and coming after you. It's like, I'm going to address all these other nations and then I'm coming after, after you. Um, so... 
eight oracles we can chart. Verse 3 against Damascus, verse 6 against Gaza, verse 9 against Tyre, verse 11 against Edom, verse 13 against the Ammonites, chapter 2-1 against Moab, chapter 2-4 against Judah, and chapter 2-6 against Israel. So that big circle first, and then jabs at the rivals to the south, and lastly a direct hit. So if a preacher talks about sins in the Far East, sins in the Middle East, sins in Europe, you're like, amen, amen, yes, boy, those people. And then Central America, oh yeah, yeah, Central America too. And then Canada, it kind of shocks us a bit, but okay, we're still okay, yeah, those Canadians, you know? But when the preacher talks about sins of America, then we start to react strongly. So that's the dynamic happening in these first two chapters. Uh, What we're learning about God in the fact that Amos preached about punishments against Israel center of the target, is that God does not have a different set of expectations for his people, Israel, than he does for the church members. I'm, I'm timing myself because i got a lot to get through today. All right, so um, Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. In other words, uh, another English translation, God does not show favoritism. Because he's the creator God of the whole world, each individual person is equally responsible before God and each nation as well. So it means something significant in two directions at the same time. Number one, Israel did not have license to sin just because God had previously saved them from Egypt. If anything, Israel had more responsibility and greater obligation to serve God because of her privileges, such as access to God's word through God's prophets. Secondly, on the other hand, the same principle of equality applies to the other nations also. Although they have not received the revelations from God that Israel has privileged to receive, yet all those other nations are nevertheless responsible before God for their own violations of God's law. How does that work? If you don't have God's law, how are you responsible for God's law? Because the law of God was implanted by God into every mind and every conscience. As Paul later makes clear, Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And verse 20 of Romans 1, they are without excuse. You can say that to every person, every nation. That's why it's not prideful for us to send missionaries everywhere in the world. The other nations worshiping other gods does not lead them to the one only living and true God. Their worship of false gods is not an acceptable equivalent. All roads lead to the same God. I should ask for a show of hands. You've heard that statement from from people as you're trying to express what the Bible teaches to them. Their false worship is not an acceptable equivalent. In fact, their worship of false or other gods increases their guilt. Romans 1.23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Those false images, false gods, could not save them from the wrath of the Lord God, who is the God of Israel, as he calls himself. There's only one God over the whole earth, and to him all must and will render account of themselves, since it's true that all nations must face the God of Israel. How much more must it be true for the people of Israel themselves, the center of the bullseye? If God is holding all nations responsible, even more culpability responsibility lands on the people of God who have received his word. So Jesus taught the same truth in, in Luke 12:48. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. Judgment must start at the household of God, is another way of saying this. Um, Because we are most expected to walk with God in faith and holiness. So, um, 
Don't you find this to be a common question that's answered by the book of Amos, interestingly? A common question that your coworker, your extended family member, uh, your neighbor might have, they start talking about religion, is that since pagan nations have not received the blessing of God's word, how can they possibly be held responsible for failing to do what God's word says in your Bible? The answer is they're not being judged by God for failing to do what they did not know. Rather, every person is being judged by God for failing to do what they knew very well was required of them. What I'm getting at is the crimes in this section have something in common. Everything from chapter 1-3 to 2-16. They're all atrocious. Every human being who's in touch with what humanity is, the entire history of the world, would agree that the things I'm about to read to you are atrocious, shockingly cruel and wicked, that you don't have to be a fine-tuned expert in what God's word says in order to conclude that this is wrong. Chapter 1-3, they hit people with iron threshing sledgehammers. Sorry, one second. uh, Verse 6, they carried into exile a whole people. Verse 9, they delivered up a whole people without regard for treaties they had signed. Verse 11, they pursued their brothers with a sword without compassion. Verse 13, they ripped open pregnant women in order to get more land. Chapter 2, verse 1, they burned to lime the bones of a dead king. They literally dug him up out of the ground and burned the body and then used the body to build stuff. The, the lime to build things. Chapter 2, verse 4, they rejected the law of the Lord and were led astray by lies. Chapter 2, 7, they sell the righteous for silver or a pair of sandals. A man and his father go into the same girl, profaning God's holy name, for she is, not, she is made in God's image. They make people drink alcohol who had vowed not to drink alcohol. All the nations were being cruel. More than that, they were violating all humanitarian rights that ought to be upheld in every nation, region, village, town, and household. They had common sense, but they knew better. They knew better, but they didn't use that. In addition, the last two countries were Judah and Israel, who had God's word, so they really knew better. They were abominable, and God says they have to answer to God. They're violations of the basic code of human behavior written across the hearts of all people regarding what is expected of all of us. Friend or foe, relative or stranger, neighbor or citizen from a distant nation, God holds even the pagan nations responsible for basic, decent behavior toward other human beings, even during war. God had been more than patient. God had been shown mercy, showing mercy for a long time. And at last, God's announcing here his judgment in the language of Amos for three transgressions of, name the nation, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And the point of God here is that each nation had a pattern of this behavior. There are atrocities upon atrocities, and only one example is listed in each, where there's three known and four to be talked about. And, of course, many more. But those are the ones, that, as it were, being brought into court by God. All right, moving on to chapter 3. Begins a new sermon now of Amos. He shows that compared to other nations, Israel has a higher obligation to live holy lives. Privilege implies responsibility. To have the Bible is a privilege, so it implies more responsibility. Verses 1 and 2 of Amos 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So if Amos were preaching a sermon then upon this text, he might have point one, Israel was God's chosen people. Isn't that what he's saying in what I just read? 
Even the name Israel communicates this ever since Genesis 35, verse 10, when God said to Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. The special name given by God and the special relationship to God came to them as a gift. Genesis 35, 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So here, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he comes to remind the people of Israel of this. Verse 2, God said to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's really just the family of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. Abraham had been a pagan, no different from anyone else. And then God revealed himself to Abraham, called Abraham out of darkness to light. Abraham is God's chosen person, so all the children of Abraham born into the family of God. If Amos were to have a second point of his sermon, it would be, Israel had been delivered from slavery in the land of Egypt. You see that in verse 2. Not only chosen, but then also redeemed. And if he had a third point in the sermon, it would be this nation of Israel was unique. Uh, privileges that made them the unique. The selection by God and the rescue by God. Again, those same two points, chosen and redeemed. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, the point of Amos is cause and effect. If Verse 3, the people make an appointment to meet and go for a walk. They do so together. If they have not made an appointment to go for a walk together, the walk doesn't happen. Right? Then the list progresses to something more threatening, such as verse 6, an alarm sounds in the city. Won't the people be alarmed? Disaster doesn't come to a city unless the Lord has sent it. Notice that. God sends disasters. So he sends warnings and then disasters. And the disasters are themselves warning of further judgment. Verse 7, before God sends disaster, he reveals it to his servants, the prophets, so the prophets such as Amos reveal the warning that God's judgment is coming. He's gracious in sending the warnings. That's the point Amos is making uh, of himself being called a prophet. <clears throat> there will be nowhere to hide, verse 9, not in the strongholds, not in the mountains. Verse 11, enemies will surround them and plunder their strongholds. Verse 14, when God punishes, he will punish the unauthorized false worship altars at Bethel we talked about last week. Verse 15, they will not be able to escape their winter house or their summer house. Notice these are people who have both a winter house and a summer house. They're rather wealthy, right? Nor to the great house, fancy with ivory. There'll be nowhere to hide from God's judgment. Your money won't save you. Uh, Same is true for final judgment of God, which is described in a vision of the Apostle John. In Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Revelation 6, 15 to 17 seems to pick up the same concept from Amos here. Moving to chapter 4, um, can religion be a bad thing? You ask your pagan neighbor, uh, what if uh, one person's religion is Catholic, another is Protestant, another is Buddhist, another is Judaism, another is Islam, another is Confucianism? Would your unbelieving neighbor or coworker or relative say, all those religions are good? It's good. Whatever a person wants to do, just let them alone. They all add value to that person's life. You just don't understand because you're coming at it from your narrow perspective, right? Um, As... Healthy as lowering your intake of sugar, sodium, cholesterol, getting more sleep, exercising. Those things are good, and so therefore religion is good, right? Can religion always be good, or can religion be bad? Is it interesting that Amos would answer this question for us? Most people would say that religion is a very good thing. 
doesn't matter which religion you choose to practice, all are very good. Would you agree with that? And do you think Amos agrees with that? How about among the various forms of churches that call themselves Christian? Let's just narrow within Christian. Would you say they're all good for you, all churches? Let's say a church that teaches that homosexuality is good. Let's say a church that teaches that only Jesus is God and there is no Father and Spirit. Is that good for you to attend a church that constantly teaches that? How about a church that teaches you that you have to be a good person in order to be accepted by God? Works-based. Is that good for you? Are those churches and the involvement of the people in those churches a good thing and is it good for their life, for their spiritual walk, and ultimately their future? Most people would say that some form of religion is better than no religion at all, and they assume that God thinks the same way they think on this subject. They actually believe that God is equally pleased with all religious practices and certainly all Christian churches. Anyone who calls themselves a Christian church or denomination, all would lead to God, wouldn't they? Uh, Just different routes to the same spiritual mountain, the same God on top of that mountain. How about Amos chapters 4 and 5 tells us that that's not how God thinks at all. In fact, God is very much displeased with false religious practices. God hates false religions And God despises false religions. In Amos 4, our prophet Amos is now denouncing false religion of a foreign nation. He did denounce foreign nations in chapters 1 and 2 for their cruel and inhumane behavior. But here in chapter 4, Amos is not talking about the gods of the Philistines or Edom or Moab. Amos is talking about God's own people who say that they worship the Lord God and who seem to do so joyfully and enthusiastically. Amos is talking about false centers for worship in the northern kingdom of Israel, namely Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Each had their own forms of worship of God. People went there. People said they were worshiping God. They gave donations. But they were adding to their sins. Can religion be a bad thing? Amos 4.1, hear this word, and then he calls on the rich women. (laughs) Ladies, he calls the rich women cows, And what he means there is not their weight at all. What he means is the the dynamic of uh, their behavior. Don't get distracted by our modern fascination that that would be unbelievably insulting, okay? Calling someone a cow in those days was not calling them fat. Calling them cows is what God did because God is looking at their spiritual lives and he's saying, you don't care for the poor. How is that like a cow? Like a beast of the field, they're preoccupied with their own appetites. Look in verse 1 at what the women were doing, oppressing the poor, crushing the needy, and saying to their husband, bring me a drink. They're very wealthy, yet they did nothing to serve and care for the poor. Verse 2, they'll be taken away with hooks. Verse 3, they'll be pushed out of the city through breaches in the wall. Verse 4, when they come to Bethel, that false um, worship location, they're transgressing. And in Gilgal, they're multiplying transgression right where they're worshiping with sacrifices every morning. It was religion, but it was not the true worship of the true Lord God. Verse 6, God says he'll give them lack of food, that they didn't return to God. Verses 7 and 8, he withheld the rain, they still didn't return to God. Verse 9, he sent mildew and locusts, they still didn't return to God. Verse 10, he sent the pestilence as bad as the plagues of Egypt, plagues of Egypt, pestilence, but they still did not return to God. Verse 11, God overthrew some of them with burning, as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, but they still did not return to God. Verse 12, therefore prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Verse 13, God, the creator of the mountains and the wind, is the Lord God. There's worship that's pleasing to God, and there's worship that's not pleasing to God. There's worship that's good for you, and then there's worship that destroys you. God instructed his people to bring 
burnt offerings, grain offerings, animal sacrifices, but religion that's just performing those actions without a life that lines up with that is not pleasing to God. The only thing pleasing to God is genuine response to him from a thankful heart, together with the obedient living that goes along with that, all growing out of a life that's been transformed by God himself. So he gets to chapter 5, and it sounds like a funeral song because there's spiritual death where there should have been spiritual life and abandonment where there should have been companionship with God. Verse 1, God himself starts singing a lament. Verse 2, fallen is Israel. Verse 3, the city will shrink in population. Verse 4, God said, seek me and live. Verse 5, but don't go to the false centers of worship at Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. You won't find me there. That's not where you seek me and find me. Verse 6, he repeated, seek the Lord and live. Verse 7, they turned justice and right living into bitter fruit called wormwood. Verse 8, the God who made the stars and their constellations, the day and the night, the waters of the sea, the Lord is his name. Worship the one who's the creator himself. Verse 9, God can cause destruction. Verse 11, because you trample on the poor, you will not live in the houses you built with that money. Verse 12, God knows how many sins, how great those sins. They afflict innocent people, take bribes, won't help the needy even when brought to court to do so. Verse 13, it was an evil time. Verse 14, they were to seek good and not evil so that they may live. Sounds just like verse 6. Verse 15, hate evil, love good, establish justice legally. Verse 16, there will be crying in the city streets, on the farms, and the funeral homes because, verse 17, God will pass through. Verse 18, people want the day of judgment. Why would you want the day of judgment? It's not funny. They actually think they'll be vindicated by God as good people because they're good church-going people, right? So they think that the day that God comes is a day of God vindicating them and telling them what good people they are. Verse 19, if a man ran away from a lion, a bear will meet him. If he gets through the bear, he'll go to his home, puts his hand against the wall to rest, thinking, I made it, and a snake bites him and he dies. This is what people think of when they think, I'm serving God, and yet God's going to get me. It's the falsehood of believing you can escape. Verse 20, the Lord is bringing them darkness and gloom. Verses 21 to 24, I want to read this out to you. If you're you're looking, chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened calves, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. God calls it the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says your life has to be living according to God's word, not just the worship services. Verse 25, did you bring sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? Verse 26, take your false gods. And verse 27, send them into exile. So chapter 5 confirms that God hates empty religion and it explains why. God did an autopsy of the dead faith of the dead religious lives. Were they able to worship God in truth, then also have widespread moral corruption? How is that possible? The same in the time of Christ, the religious leaders found a way to execute Jesus during the Holy Week, the highest Holy Week of the year. And they, on the side, took care of Jesus and then went to their regular annual religious services, right? How is that possible? Fake religion. Times of the Crusades, 1096 to 1291, Christians conducted a series of violent wars against Muslims in the name of religion, primarily to seek control of holy sites of land considered sacred by both groups. There are eight major bloody expeditions varying in size, strength, and degree of success occurring during a span of 195 years in the name of Christians. 
How is that possible? Fake religion. God hates it when there's no sense of sin on the part of the worshiper. The worshiper's not seeking God. The religion's not an attempt to seek God and find him. It's really an attempt to get away from God and say that you're in his worship. They went into religion for the glory it would bring to themselves. They wanted to be seen as important, so they seek Bethel instead of the God of Bethel. They seek, in the New Testament days, the church instead of the God of the church. People can hide from God within religion. The male worshipers at Bethel were actually there to meet up with women, if you know what I mean, near and in the temple. And consider the many disasters that God gave. The disasters were designed to turn the people back to God, as chapter 5 labored to show. Seek me and live, says God. And when Jesus came, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right, chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease, who feel secure. Uh, there's a bad and a wrong sort of relaxed condition that's actually indifference. Woe, woe to those who don't care. That's basically what you're saying. In God's kingdom, there's work to be done. So if you're not a Christian, you ought, to feel, ought not to feel secure until you believe in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you ought not to feel at ease because the young need to be trained in the ways of God. The pagan nations need missionaries. The poor need food and care. The troubled need comfort. The confused need truth. The hurting need love. And the wayward need to be brought back. It's not a time to take it easy. Uh, who's Amos talking to? What is wrong with complacency? What can be done about it? Amos is talking to the people in Jerusalem in the, in the southern kingdom. Ordinarily, Amos speaks to the northern kingdom. Remember, all throughout he speaks to Israel. But here, for a quick moment, he speaks to his hometown, his home uh, uh, kingdom, nation, the southern kingdom. But there are moments in this book where he addresses them in Judah. Uh, verse 1, in Zion, which is Jerusalem. right? Chapter 6, 1. Uh, there are many who believe that because they were God's people, because they lived in Jerusalem, because God's temple and God's throne were in Jerusalem, nothing bad could ever happen to them. They actually believe that they were guaranteed to be protected by God. And here's the kicker. They actually believe they're protected by God himself. Protected from God by God. They believe that they were immune to God's judgment as God's personal guarantee. And the problem is God came in the beginning of Amos as a roaring what? <laughs> as a roaring lion in chastisement. They believed they were safe no matter what they did or how they lived. Safe no matter what they believed or how they lived. Do we have any of that today? Is there anyone in the, um, let's just narrow it to the um, evangelical Christian church within the United States of America. Do we have anyone who believes that they're safe from God's wrath no matter how they live or what they do? Um, let's narrow it further. Let's just say within the Reformed world. Let's say uh, because the PCA has big names, you know, D. James Kennedy, Barnhouse, Boyce, Riken, Keller, Sproul, Kevin DeYoung, that they're immune to God's judgment, that we're exempt from God's roaring chastisement. Is that what we would say? Is that what they would say? Is there anyone in the PCA who believes that they're safe in God and safe from his confrontations no matter how they live, no matter what they do? I hope not. If we have any of that, we know where to go to correct it. Amos 6.1, woe to those who are at ease because of correct theology or woe to those who feel secure in their sins because they hold to reformed doctrine. But in typical Amos style, it's not enough to say woe to the southern kingdom, <laughs> to the PCA. Amos went on to say woe to the northern kingdom. Verse 1, woe to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. Now Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel just as Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. But... 
Samaria didn't have God's special promises the same way that Jerusalem had. Samaria had trusted in her high mountain and the strong military defense that it provided. It's high up and the hills were steep sides. They could not build a battering ram to attack those walls due to the high elevation. Um, we ought not to trust in our own selves, our own prayers, our own deacon fund to help the poor, our own fasting or repenting or church going or chapel going or outreachers or mission trips or nothing in the eyes of God who demands our perfect obedience. Which of us has perfect righteousness that God requires of us? Adam's fig leaves cannot cover him. Now let's address ourselves. Uh, Amos is directing his hit against the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom with a direct hit in the center of the bullseye. What about the OPC? Right? Because the OPC has this grand history of J. Gresham Machen, whose book we're celebrating this 100th year this year, right? Christianity and liberalism. We had John Murray. We had E.J. Young, John Galbraith, Neil Tolsma, Daryl Hart, um, Craig Troxell. Because we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, are we immune to God's judgment that we're exempt from the roaring chastisement of God? We can live no matter how we want and still expect God's blessing because we're Reformed after all and we're OPC after all. God forbid that we would ever adopt that mindset. If we ever do, let's go to Amos 6 and go through verse by verse. God says in verse 2, Look beyond Jerusalem and Samaria to the cities of Kalna, Hamath, and Gath. And these places once had strong fortifications that are destroyed. What he's saying is look to the mainline denominations, the Methodist Church, the mainline Presbyterian Church, the mainline Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, the Congregationalist Churches, the Pentecostal Churches, the Holiness Churches, the Alliances, Associations and Council Networks, Independents, and local Bible Churches. Okay, smarty pants, OPC person, Why should I preserve you for sake of your supposed awesome story, internal goodness, if I didn't preserve others when they fell away and started living like pagans? Do you see how this is right on? God is rattling our cages. Amos is rattling the cages of Israel. I was trying to bring it home to you, right? Study church history. Verse 2, God literally says, look at verse 2, are you better than these kingdoms? Verse 3, those who procrastinate and do not deal with spiritual things until tomorrow, but tomorrow never comes for them. Verse 4, woe to those who enjoy their wealth with their furniture and food. Verse 5, woe to those who have carefree strumming on stringed instruments with their songs and entertainments. Verse 6, woe to those focused on unnecessary things, wine, special lotions, fine products, but are not spiritually grieved by the downfall of truly necessary things, the spiritual vigor of themselves and other people, that some people need food to survive. They're so caught up with the songs and stuff of worthless culture, they become worthless themselves, and good wine and beautiful skin will not get you closer to God. They don't care about the declining church. The problem isn't money. The problem is not simply possessing money. Abraham was rich. Many other believers have been wealthy and have used that wealth for God. The problem is not money. The problem is having more money tends to pull us in the direction of personal self-indulgence instead of pulling us in the direction of serving God and his people with our whole heart. Money tends to make us forget about the people who are suffering a financial shortfall. Isn't that ironic? Ask yourself this. Why is there an inverse equation? The more money we have, the less generous we become percentage-wise. Interesting. Maybe we're just like Samaria. Spending it on ourselves. Amos says, wake up to the danger of your soul, of what you're doing. 
You know what happens next to wealthy people who are falling asleep spiritually? They start thinking that they became wealthy because they deserved it. And those who did not become wealthy don't deserve it. And so the poor just really ought to suffer because they just don't work hard enough. Right? Have you ever heard that? False doctrine? Or they had the same opportunities, they chose not to take them. We have a word for that. It's called pride. Pride in the heart of the wealthy. It's not just being puffed up. It's also believing a lie. It's a lie that says, you made your money yourself. Deuteronomy 8.17 squares that off and, and corrects that error. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.17. Pride is built on a lie. Let's see what Amos says. Amos fell silent and only transcribed word for word what the Lord God says about this in Amos 6, verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Amos 6, verse 8. First, God gives us the power to get wealth. Then we work and get wealth, and we increase ourselves. Then we become at ease. Then we become insensitive to the needs of those who suffer. We can afford it. Others can't. Our needs are met. Others lack necessities. We start to believe we deserve it and start to believe the poor don't. We live in a world of meritocracy in our own head. And people believe that we got what we got by our own merit, our own hard work, the sweat of our own brow, and that we ought not to share. People in our country believe the opposite, that you lack what you lack because your own lack of merit, lack of hard work, lack of sweat, It's a prideful heart and a brain filled with lies. God says his people always have compassion for the poor. But if you don't wake up, what happens next? You become irresponsive and irresponsible, not only to the needy, but also then as a steward of your own many belongings, a person in relationship to your family, neighbors, workplace, church, city, community, country, and world, you punch out. And for a Christian, there's always work to be done. You've opted out without authorization to do so, because it's much easier to enjoy your abundance. We isolate ourselves from the real problems around us. There are poor who need books and clothes, good housing, education. There's people who have been hurt and need love and care. There's widows who need visits, confused people who need counseling, unbelievers who need the gospel explained to them, with a relationship of relaxed friendship from someone who gives time and love. There are thousands of Christians in southeastern Wisconsin area. How many are being good stewards of compassionately reaching out to others with the love of Jesus. When good people withdraw, evil people gain more of a foothold. Everyone is impacted when evil people do more over time as the impact on the next generation and the generation after that. This is what Amos is talking about here in chapter 6. i got to move on. We're in chapter 7. What holds the last part of the book together is five visions. Chapter 7, 1, 7, 4, 7, 7, 8, 1, and 9, 1 have this phrase. This is what the Lord God showed me, behold. So the first four have that phrase and shows you the vision. And then 9, 1 has a slightly different wording. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said. So there's five visions here. An appropriate end to this book because Amos has already warned that judgment is coming. He's already explained the reasons for the judgment. It naturally follows that Amos would now display word pictures of that coming judgment and makes his last plea to turn to God. What comes across in all five visions is that judgment is inevitable, 
because it's based on an unchanging character of God. So many people think it would be nice if they could change God, get God to calm down. But it's not a matter of God being... It's not a matter of, of God being in a fit of rage. People actually misunderstand God himself. When you say God's wrath, it arises directly out of his holiness, directly out of his righteousness, and his uh, permanent sense of what is just and right. We, we can't change that uh, about God. He's holy and committed to justice. We're the ones who must change. These visions teach us to change and become more like God while there's yet time for us to do so. So, Colette. Great, yeah. I think that scene in chapter 9 at the very end, right, the, the blessing of what, what does come when this is changed. So Amos is bringing this threat across this, you know, um, judgment, um, confrontation, prophecy of uh, God's displeased with character and behavior. And then when Christ enters, then we see all these things uh, restored and returned at, at the very end. So a first vision is the plague of locusts should strike us as familiar because it was in Joel a second vision is a fire, a chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Of course, fire is always symbolic of judgment, right? The fires, fires of hell we read about in Revelation. The third vision, verses 7 to 9 of chapter 7. Amos is famous for the plumb line, right? If you've, if you've ever heard or studied Amos at all, you hear about the plumb line. It is a heavy weight on the end of a string that shows whether the wall is straight up or not. It's used as a tool to inspect a wall while a house is being built or repaired, it's a um, using gravity, which is designed by God, upheld by God, to show where's true vertical. And so compared to the string of God's true vertical, the inspection shows whether the wall is straight up or leaning in one direction. Verses 10 through 17, discussions of a prophet, priest, and king, um, where basically um, the priest objected to the prophet Amos and tattled to the king, and the priest was mean to Amos in verses 13 to 15, uh, Amos responded that he used to be a shepherd, but God sent him with a message, so everyone has to deal with God, not Amos. Verses 16 to 17, the wife becomes a prostitute. In other words, Israel will go into exile away from its own land. The fourth vision, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it's a basket of overripe fruit. Um, it is uh, basically uh, rotten or, or past uh, ripe. 
the words uh, Hebrew word summer fruit sounds like the Hebrew word for end. So then God says, I'll bring an end um, that it will be that'll become past time. Verses four through six declarations against greed and business. Verses seven to ten God's oath against greed and business. Uh, verses uh, eleven through. Uh, we're doing great. I just was keeping myself on track. I've got um, about nine minutes, eight minutes to go, and we can do this. So chapters uh, 8, verses 11 through 14, that concept of the famine of the word of God. You ever hear that? If, if you studied Amos at all, you remember this haunting image of not having the word of God, having a famine for it. Um, so it's interesting how after the Old Testament, God sent a, a time of silence, of 400 years when there were no prophets. Um, and the problem in our day is not a lack of the word of God, but lack of people who consider it treasure. Um, so if we reject the word of God, our thinking gets distorted regarding what's valuable, what's right, and what's important. Think about it. We have recordings of millions of faithful sermons. We have churches pre- preaching the Bible in all states. We have Christian books, schools, conferences, seminars, even some Christian movies. And millions of people don't want God's word or the message of it. So we need to study the Bible as God's great gift to us in the New Testament age, make full use of our Bibles. Chapter 9, then, verses 1 through 4 are the fifth vision, the Lord in his glory. Verses 5 and 6, a song celebrating the Lord's power. And then verses 7 through 10, the continuation of the announcement of, of judgment. So the, the question is, basically, that ends the judgment portion and then the beautiful ending that I want to spend the rest of our time on. But the, the final question at the end of all this, um, you know, nine, eight and a half chapters of judgment is this question. When you meet the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father, uh, will it be as your Savior or as your judge? And, and flee, flee to him now. So then you get this beautiful ending. Remember how our theme across all the prophets is judgment unto restoration, judgment unto salvation? So we see that salvation, restoration in these last verses, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, where you find New Testament fulfillments and uh, that our God provides for us the answer to all of our errors and sins and wrongs. So verses 13 to 15 are such a wonderful situation described poetically of a farming and agricultural abundance in the land that it sounds like a new garden of Eden. If I'll just read verses 13... 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. Notice I will plant them, not just the trees and vines, but I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. So when the exiles return from exile, there'll be no gap of time between when they plant and when they reap. And they'll still be reaping when it's time to plant again. The abundance is nearly supernatural. Um, that the pictures of God supplying and providing food for the returnees from exile in a miraculous fashion. From wherever we are, if we turn to God, then abundant fruit comes from him. And uh, as soon as one man plants a seed, the man behind him can pick the fruit from it that instantly grew. And the amounts, uh, the abundance of grapes resulting in new wine flowing, as it were, down the mountains and the hills. 
So poetically at least, maybe even miraculously, there's so much wine that the hills will flow with it. You can compare this with the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 18. Whatever the details and specifics, we must agree that here we're reading words of promise and the words of God's reassurance and grace and restoration. Maybe the best part is that we notice that the Lord's message directed in verse 14 to my people Israel. What is God's relationship to his people in the end? His answer is verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. This is what God does. He produces this through his word, through his spirit being given. Resettling into their towns that were militarily devastated and abandoned will come with problems. Uh, New vineyards would need to be planted. New gardens would need to be established. New trees planted. All this is accompanied by the hand of the Almighty. It's a picture of regaining paradise. Uh, Verse 15, now it's not plants and trees, but it's notice who's being planted. I will plant them. It's not of a literal land possession, uninterrupted, literal land rights perpetually and unquestioned, bringing down into today. Don't confuse it as a modern Israel statement here. This is a picture of ultimate spiritual truth from God. It's God's pointing to the end when he will gather his exiled people into the future security of his kingdom of heaven. The repossession of the literal land will be a sign that points to the relationship to God being secure perpetually. So the last words of this book are a reference to the covenant name of the covenant Lord God. Notice that, L-O-R-D in all caps. He's comforting his covenant people with assurances that he's their God and they are his people. Says the Lord your God is how the book ends to us. So it's good news to us. It's that gracious last impression to leave ringing in the ears of his people who have been so wrong and so erring. God remains our God. He will carry us out carry out his gracious purposes to bless us, grant us his favor in rich and lasting ways. The relationship of favor continues into eternity future. It was not just in good gardens, but in more distant future when God would send a descendant of David. Um, Notice how it said in verse 11, the booth of David. Do you notice that? That's a reference to how God had promised to David there would be a king on his throne. And that's fulfilled. Verse 11, In that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. This is fulfilled in, in Romans 1, 3, and 4. Um, God later revealed he's descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the future and hope of God's people Israel was in the Savior Jesus, descended from David, the booth of David reestablished, as verse 11 said. So what is needed here, what is pictured here, is not the reestablishment of a certain piece of real estate in the Middle East, nor an earthly kingdom on that soil or arising from that soil. That is not what is in view in the prophecy of Amos. That is not what we really need or what the world needs. Instead, what's needed is a new kingdom that will far exceed any human expectations a new kingdom of which God is the initiator. God is the one who alone provides richly for us. He brings us safely home to heaven. He's building a new kingdom that is the church. It's the insig- the God uses insignificant people to build his kingdom. Uh, Amos was a shepherd. And we have no indication that any uh, formal religious training other than the content of this book. But the glory of God's messages go out 
not only to Amos, but to everyone to whom Amos prophesied. And Paul wrote the same truth about his kingdom, God's kingdom being the case in New Testament church, 1 Corinthians 1.26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Amos was totally given over to God, and so God accomplished much through Amos in his lifetime. And this final passage, uh, Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, is quoted in Acts chapter 15. Uh, when the apostles were setting up the New Testament church. And James is the one who quoted this, and he's speaking about whether the people who receive God's blessings are just Israel, or are they others. And what they're saying is when the Gentiles came in, they too receive these blessings from God. So that's another indication that it's not simply um, ethnicity or a people group such as Jews or Judaism, not connected to real estate and all those Old Testament locations, but it's connected to God's work through the Spirit, opening his kingdom to Jews and Gentiles and calling his people to himself. So uh, farming language in verses 11 to 15, understanding the blessings of spiritual harvest now, spiritual harvest in his kingdom, and spiritual harvest to come in God's future kingdom. For example, we end Revelation with uh, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. John, sh- sh- John has a vision. You know how there's five visions here of Amos? Here the apostle John has a vision. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The apostle Paul agreed and gave a short summary statement in Philippians 1.23. Paul desired to be with Christ. That is far better. The Apostle Peter confirmed that in heaven, God's people will enjoy an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the Apostle John wrote in Romans 22.5, we will be with Christ and we will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the truth of your word. How we thank you for the prayer.